Welcome to another episode of Bear Books. I'm Daisy Ray. And I'm April Berry. Today, we have another indie author interview. Love these conversations. Today, we are talking to J.S. Savage, and we are talking about his debut novel, The Mystery of Treefall Manor, which is sort of Agatha Christie meets locked room thriller. Talk about giving yourself a challenge on your first ever novel. (laughs) What did you think of it, April? I was looking forward to this, actually. I liked the fact that it was set in the 1920s, so it kind of did take me back. I've got to say to when I was in my 20s and I read every single Agatha Christie book that was going. So it was a bit of a nostalgic journey, if I'm honest, for me. Nice. Back into my childhood. I did get a bit confused as I was reading the books. I did think there was a lot of characters in it. But one of the things that I will say about John is that he's got a way with words to paint a picture. Okay. I do think that he can paint a good picture. Any particular instances? It was all the way through the book, really. He's sort of setting the scene. Hmm. If I'm honest, the first chapter kind of got me asking a few questions. You know, what's going on here? What am I going to be looking forward to? And I've got to say, I didn't get the murderer. Okay. I had to wait to the end of the book. Um, But anyway, let's see what John's got to say. We are talking to John Savage. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. John's written The Mystery of Treefall Manor, an Inspector Graves' locked room mystery. So congratulations, John, on your debut novel. Thank you. What inspired you to start writing? And why start with crafting the impossible murder scenario with locked doors and windows? Well, to be fair, I actually started the novel during the first lockdown, quite a while ago now. I'm sure you can remember there was very little else to do, apart from read and watch Tiger King. So I wanted to always write a crime novel because I just wanted to challenge myself. You know, there's that old saying that everyone has a novel in them, and I just wanted to see if that was true. And I thought, well, if you're going to write 75, 80,000 words, you might as well try to do the best you can and try to make it as difficult for yourself as you can, which is why I chose the locked room mystery element, because... <laughs> I think in the subgenre of crime or mystery, that's the most difficult to write because the plotting has to be so on point. I love that challenge of, you know, can I write something that stands up alongside, I wouldn't say the masters, but, you know, certainly is it worthy of being read and enjoyed? And obviously I'm, I'm quite pleased with the result because when I wrote it, I had no intention at all of, of ever, ever publishing it. It was just a fun project to get me through lockdown. Something that was just, it was just for me and my, my fiance. I was writing the book for her. She's who the book's dedicated to. But as I was writing it, I just found I really enjoyed the process of the plotting, the writing, everything that you learn along the way. You know, writing is not just sitting down a laptop and tapping away. It's there's so much more to it that you don't even realize until you finish your first draft. So I just wrote the first draft thinking, oh yeah, brilliant. I've, this is pretty good book and then you start seeing the sort of plot holes and the you know the the, the problems of the book that an editor would kind of rip to pieces so you go back and you you know you do your your process but to be fair to begin with it was just fun 
which is really what reading should be. You know, you want to read the book that you want to read. And that's a big thing, especially in the crime. You want to write something that's baffling, but it's got to be simple enough that the reader can follow and enjoy. Mm. And that's all I wanted to do. And then as I finished it, refined it, improved it, I started getting a lot of good feedback from people who I knew wouldn't just say good things, but actually mean it. You know, so that's when I thought, well, you know what, maybe you should look into putting it towards a wider audience, which is obviously where we are now. Yeah, baptism by fire. Then, yeah, excuse me. Yeah, you got to put yourself right there, don't you? You know, you do. Yes, it's a brave thing to do for anybody, much less putting yourself in the firing line with something that is going to be read by potentially hundreds of thousands of people on a good day. On a good, well, on a very good day, <laughs> a very good decade, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so the use of the Canterbury Tales as a clue, that's quite intriguing. How did you come up with that specific detail and its significance to your story? The premise of the novel is you've got Alexander Grimborn, who's the patriarch of this family. The book's set in 1926, and he's found stabbed to death in his study slash library. Uh, he's found lying on the floor in front of a bookcase with a knife through his heart. And he's clutching the Canterbury Tales. Now, I could have used pretty much any book, but obviously the book set in 1926, so it had to be a book that everyone knows, but you don't have to have read the book. And because the novel is English quintessential golden age crime novel, I thought a good sort of quintessential English classic would be the type of book to use, like Clue. You know that it's a clue because he's fine clutching the book in his dead hand. Yeah. Um, but you could use it as, say, for example, he's stabbed and in his dying moments, he picks a book off the bookshelf in front of him and the author's initials of the book are the same as a murder suspect. That could be a clue to the detectives. You know, maybe there's an inscription inside the book, which is a clue for another suspect. That's something that could be a clue for the detectives. I can see you've put a lot of thought into that. Yeah, there was a lot of thought went into well, the whole novel, really. Like I said, Canterbury Tales, each chapter of mine has an epigraph. So just a, mm. short, a short passage from the Canterbury Tales, which sort of foreshadows the events in the chapter, which is really fun to write. Although the downside of that was it's the only time in my life I've ever got a pen on a novel and started underlining and defacing the novel. It felt Oops. wrong to do, you know what I mean? I'm sitting there with the Canterbury Tales in hand, flipping through, going, ooh, that would work for chapter five. That would work for chapter six. And I'm scribbling all over the novel. Didn't feel good, but needed to be done. Yeah. So how much planning did you do then, John? Quite a lot. But the thing the thing about the Lockdown mystery is that is the hardest subgenre to write, if you like, in the crime novel. So everything has to stem from that central mystery. So if you're going to write a locked room mystery, the first thing you've got to do is think, well, how is someone going to be locked, uh, murdered inside a locked room? And that takes a lot of planning. With that, you can't just have a murder inside a locked room because it's clever, because it doesn't work. There has to be a reason why. You can't just go, oh, look how clever I am. I'm going to murder someone inside a locked room. It's got to be integral to the plot. That's where the fun of the plot can come in. 
but also where some of the problems comes in because you'll think of things and then you'll realize oh hold on well that won't work because of what if it's happened in chapter two or that won't work because of whatever so in terms of the plotting to be honest i just sat in the bath and thought well how would i murder someone in the locker room yeah. <laughs> i like it i hope the map aren't listening to this conversation in my five but basically i just thought well how would i murder someone inside the locker room and get away with it did your fiance ever get worried <laughs> I think I think it was quite vague on, on what the book is about until I was confident enough that one, I was going to finish it. I kept it pretty close to my chest by what I was doing until I was confident, yeah, okay, I know this is going to be good. I know I'm going to finish it. She couldn't get that worried because, you know, she's still here now. So <laughs> Yeah, I hope you don't talk in your sleep muttering away about murdering people while she's next to you going, oh, God, I need to leave. <laughs> but, well, at least it's not dark, you know. If it was a dark crime novel, it might be yeah. different. But it is it is sort of the golden age of style murder mystery. So in terms of your question about how to plot it and the plotting element, it does take a lot of plotting for Lockdown Mystery. But that's where you get the most reward from, which makes it worthwhile. Good answer. It sounds like it's quite a complex sort of process. So how do you sort of approach your character development because from what I'm, I'm gathering from you you've got a, a lot of your concentration and a lot of your planning is all on the actual yeah lock room but what about character development so how does that fit into your planning etc so in terms of the character development what i do is I actually work backwards so as i just mentioned the locked room element is the, the fundamental part of the story and it's it's what's central if you like so the characters are actually spawned from the locked room element. What I mean by that is once I know who, how, how the locked room mystery works, once I know how it happens, I need to know who the killer is. I might know based on the actual locked room mystery, but I might not. But once I figure out who the killer is, then I need red herrings. I need motives. I need all the suspects who aren't to do with the murder mystery, but will keep the reader guessing. Then what I'll do is so I'll have my, my murder mystery, I'll have my, my killer, I'll have my red herons. Then the best way to do that is to think of characters to fit the red herons and fit all their motives. And then that's where I get, obviously, I mean, I know you've I've listened to your podcast numerous times. I know you know about pantsing and plotting. The whole book is plotted except for this bit. So when it comes to other characters who are innocent but need to have motives, that's where I let the pants and do the work. So I'll just write the character, let my imagination run wild, if you like, and see what the character does. As long as it fits within the locked room mystery and doesn't contest or conflict the locked room mystery. As long as it stays within those power parameters, then I can keep the character. Because the best characters aren't plotted. They are just spawned from your imagination. The best characters are real and you can't contrive them. You just got to let them do what they want. Interesting. So then I just need to put stumbling. So like all good characters, you need to make an arc. So you need conflict. You need you need them to have a goal, desires. But then you need to put stumbling blocks in front of them. And if those stumbling blocks can actually be clues or red herons, then you're on the winner. You know, you want to have a bit of a love triangle maybe in there. You want to have sort of not not stereotypes. Tropes aren't, tropes aren't bad, stereotypes are. So you want to have 
things that the reader's going to be familiar with, but also catch them by surprise from time to time. As long as it doesn't upset central theme, which is locked in mystery, then it's all good. Our listeners are going to love this. They love to hear about the writing process from authors because I don't think there's any two of you that do it exactly the same way. So we learn so much from you all. And I know we have touched on your writing process already, but for the narrative in particular, how do you keep the consistency? Well, when I'm reading a book, say you three chapters in a book, you know that the author of that book has not written those three chapters in a row. If it's, you know, say 50 pages, that author hasn't sat down and wrote 50 pages. So I try to like sort of see if I can guess where they've stopped writing for one day and picked up the next. And, you know, the great, great thing about most really good books is you can't, it's just seamless. So when I'm writing, I'm a morning writer. I do my best work in the morning. Um, and I aim for around about a thousand words a day. Uh, I work shifts, which is good um, in my normal day-to-day job, because it means that even though I work long hours on my off days, I get consistent. I get more than a weekend. I get like four or five days in a row off. So I find that really helpful to get a good run at it. Yeah. First thing I'll do is I'll check. I'll read. I won't read everything I've written. Obviously, I'll read the last thing that I wrote. So on the previous day's writing, I'll read what I've written and I'll notice a couple of mistakes or a couple of things where mm, that could be improved. And I'll do that quick edit down and then I'll probably read it again. Just so when I start writing that day, I go straight into it. This is the last thing that happened. I'm going to start writing. Do you not feel like you confuse yourself if you're trying to edit and write at the same time, though? Or do you cope quite well with that? No, I cope quite well, only because, because I know, I know where you come from, but only because I, I, I tend to plot quite thoroughly before I start. So before I even start the first word in, in a book, I'll know who the killer is, how it's done, and all the red herrings generally as i'm writing along sometimes things will come to me and i'll put them in but generally that's how it works i don't tend to confuse myself too much that confusion comes at the very end (laughs) when i'm reading over the whole thing and i'm going well you know whoever done that or like why he said that or she's done this or yeah the writing process i aim for about a thousand words a day Mm. Um, sometimes I'll hit more rarely I'll hit less on a bad day I might hit less I might do like 500 because hit when I was bad days sometimes it just doesn't click or you do stumble because like you said you'll think you'll start writing you'll think oh but hold on two chapters ago this happened or someone said this and now it doesn't matter how much you plot you always pants it to a certain extent and that will always make a conflict in your writing because your characters, you'll get involved with them and they'll do things that surprise you. And then you'll be writing the book and then your character will go, oh, you go to do something. Oh, that's brilliant. I love that. And I'll take you by surprise. But then you go, oh, but hold on. That's completely contradicting something that they said or did or something else that happened. You sound like you're having an actual conversation with another person and not just one of your characters. I love that. <laughs> That's basically how it works, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, even when I was thinking about you know this podcast and thinking about my book, because the book, I wrote the book three years ago now, and I've written another one since, and I'm currently writing a third. So it's been a while since I've actually thought about 
the plot and, and things that I was thinking about earlier. It's amazing how when just preparing for the podcast, thinking about the podcast, you're thinking in a different way than when you're writing mm-hmm. and you're viewing the book, like you said at the beginning, for, you know, you're, you're viewing the book in a different light based on time changes. You know, you, you think about different things. What you're trying to achieve when you're writing the book can quite often be different than what you actually do achieve. With the plotting, it's so much fun, but it's it's really difficult sometimes. Yeah. But that's where the, the editing process becomes invaluable because you, you'll pick up your mistakes there. So you've sort of talked a little bit, John, about the the editing process, reading what you've written the day before so that you get that continuity. Do you do all of your own edits or do you think fresh eyes are a better approach? No. So the way, the way I do it, once I have my first draft written, so I'll read it again on Word, um, but I'll leave it about four to six weeks because I, mean, I remember reading once, like Stephen King said, once you finish your first draft, shelve it. Put it away for six weeks. Don't look at it. And when I first read that, I thought, why? But I understand now because you're so involved in the story and you won't see. You you need to forget it in a way. So I'll put it away for six weeks, not look Mm -hmm. at it. And then in those six weeks, I'll try to plot my next novel, which is quite difficult because my brain's still wired on the first one. You can be too close to your own work, can't you? Absolutely. Too close. So after six weeks, I'll then read it again on the computer, make a few changes. Then I will print out the whole book and sit with a red pen and just read it again, go through it, make my marks, notice things. Even then, it's amazing the things that I'll find. Then when I print it, on the fourth time reading, I'll still find mistakes. Um, I'm sure you, you know, you, you're the same when you you pick up a book in a bookshop, take it home, start reading it, you will find a mistake in it. Yeah. And that's in a published book that's been proofread, edited, how many times went to a publisher, and you will always find a, book, a mistake yeah, in a book. Even the professionals do it. Even the professionals do it, yeah. And then I'll send it to a couple of beta readers, just friends, not writers or editors, just people I know that like the genre, yeah. whose opinions I trust. Not the yes-men. Not the yes-men, no. Uh, and get get the get the feedback off them, and then I'll send it to my editor, and my editor will do a full edit, um, proofread, etc. Perfect. So let's talk about a couple of your characters then, like the dynamic between Inspector Graves and Constable Carver. It's kind of an essential part of this book. How did you develop their partnership? Well, because this is the first novel in what I hope to be a series. I didn't want the info dump everything too soon. So basically for for the listener, Inspector it's a, it's a, it's titled as an, an Inspector Graves novel. So he, Inspector Graves is the brains. Um but he's quite gruff. He's he his childhood was in the Victorian age when life was hard. And Carver is forty years younger than him, who grew up in the Edwardian times. So his life was he, still hard compared to, you know, modern day, but easier than Graves's. Mm. And so I wanted to make the classic sort of master and apprentice. I had in the back of my mind that in 10, 15 years' time, it might be that Graves dies or whatever, and Carver then becomes the master, and he gets his own apprentice. So I know I was thinking long-term, way ahead, but 
it is something that you've got you to sort of consider when you're writing a series. Um, so with Graves, he's the wise head, but he's gruff. You know, he's a product of his time. Yeah. Carver is keen to impress because it's his first murder case. So in the book, which there's a good chunk of the story that doesn't feature the detectives at the very beginning, which gives you yeah. a bit of backstory to the crime and a bit of, you know, you see the build up towards the crime. And then once the murder happens, then Graves and Carver come into it. But it's their first case together. So they're both sounding each other out. Graves is looking at Carver thinking, well, are you going to be good enough? Are you a good detective? It's your first murder case. And Carver's thinking, well, this is my first murder case. I need to really impress. So I wanted to make the dynamic where there's a contrast between the two. But also, as the series progresses, you'll see more contrast between the two characters because as they grow closer, they'll also sort of grow apart. Because one of the essential plots within the book is that Graves is actually grieving his dead son who was killed in the First World War. It's hinted at, and you you know, you when you read it, you know, but it's not explicitly said, but you do know that that's what's going on. And Carver, he fought in the First World War, and he's the same age as his son. As the series progresses, you'll see that sort of father-son bond come together, but also break apart. I was keen not to do a lot of info dumping, because it's the first book. I didn't want to go, this is everything you need to know about Carver, and this is everything you need to know about Graves. Let the mystery be the main character and let the the detectives progress as the series progresses. That was the idea. But I'm happy with what I can do in the future with them too. Reminded me a little bit of Morse there when you were describing the relationship between the two. (laughs) Well, you should say that because if I'm being completely honest, the character of Inspector Graves is probably very similar to Fred Thursday in Endeavour. Only only he's more he's more clever. And I can just picture Roger Allen as Inspector Graves. So you've sort of talked about the plotting and how you need to get the murder right and, and everything fitting into place there. How do you maintain a balance between the complexity of such a subgenre and clarity to keep readers engaged? I mean, it's it's really tough. That that to me is the hardest part of writing the mystery process because when you start plotting you're thinking about the story 90% of your mental energy and 90% of what you think of is all about the impossible mystery how it works how it all comes together how Mm. you can trick the reader but make it fair but that only takes up 10% of the book for the reader so the reader only reads that at the very end, but you spent all that time and energy thinking about that. So that payoff needs to, like you say, it's a balance. And, that, and that's what's really hard. But basically, there needs to be like a fork in the road early on. So in, in the mystery novel, there's, there's two things happening. There's what's really happening and there's what you think is happening as the reader. And that has to be contrasted. So there needs to be a false assumption that makes the reader go down the wrong path. And as you say, it's all about getting the balance right. And this is where the clever detective has a sidekick. So in, so like Sherlock has his Watson, Graves has his Carver. And that's because Graves will ask the questions that will ultimately lead to the answer, but he won't tell you what he's thinking. It's then Carver who will then sort of jump in and 
guide the narrative to lead the reader down the wrong path. If that makes sense. It does. The murder is obviously the main element of the story, but you need to have more than one mystery. And you need to have a mystery pretty early on. It doesn't need to be a murder. It doesn't need to be anything violent. It doesn't need to be anything too dramatic. But you need to have something that hooks the reader. So, for example, in this book, at the very, very beginning of the book, one of the characters, Ed Osborne, gets invited to the wedding in the Treefall State. And it's his best friend who's getting married. But it's not his best friend who's invited him to the wedding. In fact, he doesn't, he doesn't even know that his best friend's engaged. So it's a very, very small element there. Of, well, why, why is he not the one doing the inviting? Why is it this future father-in-law? Why doesn't he know about it? And then when he gets to the Treefall Estate, he sees like a suspicious stranger lurking about in the woods. And he goes, well, who's that? Like, what are they doing? You know what's going to come back at some point in the book. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a very good book. But, you know, it's it's those little tiny mysteries that all build up and just keep the reader engaged. They were some of the questions that did come. It's like, well, why isn't your friend inviting you to the wedding? Does he even want to marry this woman? Exactly, yeah. I mean, what's going on here? This is just not normal behaviour. <laughs> so what challenges did you encounter it is a balancing act, like you've just said, because you've got to craft a puzzle, but you've also got to tell a story, and they are two separate things, and you've got to like weave them together. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's tough, because um, yeah. there's a fine line between giving the reader too much info, where it's mm. easy to solve the murder, or not giving them enough and not playing fair. You've got to give the reader the clues that they need to solve the mystery, but just hope that they don't. And then, you know, they go, oh, they, oh, yeah, that was good. I enjoyed that. That's the, the trouble. It's 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 getting that balance. But as as the author, you know, it's difficult to judge if you've put too many clues in or not enough. And that's where, that's where your beta readers are worth the weight in gold. Because you get to the point, especially when you're doing your edits and you go back and you change things. And you get to the point where you go, I can't see the wood for the trees. I don't know if I've given too many clues. I don't know if I, don't have, if I haven't given enough. And that's where you need all the people to sort of tell you, look at it with fresh eyes. But with regard to influences, I mean, I know it's not a very original thing to say, but Agatha Christie is probably a very predictable answer. Very popular genre. Very popular. I mean, she's the best-selling mystery author of all time for a very good reason. But now we're talking about like sort of misdirection. Like she's the queen of that. Anyone who's read the ABC Murders or The Pale Horse will know, even though The Pale Horse isn't one of the most famous books, you read that book and you're just led down a path that you don't even believe. You know, no, 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 something's not right here. I'm being told this, but you can't see any other way. And then you're just completely blindsided. And it's the same with the ABC Murders. <laughs> I read the ABC Murders and I was going, well, it's him, it's him, it's him. And then... You get lands like, oh, it's not him. All right, okay. You filled me again, did you? Uh, <laughs> with locked room mysteries, John Dixon Carr has got to be the, cl- the classic one, the master. But I've actually only read about half a dozen of his books. So I've got a lot of reading to do. And then modern day stuff. I mean, Robert Thorogood, who has written six novels so far, he's written the Marlon Murder Club mysteries, always writes fair play mysteries, gives you all the clues. See if you sees if you can figure it out. Uh, great writer. Also, there's a quite a new writer, Tom Mead. He's written two Lockdown mysteries. Really good plotting. Really genius stuff. Um, so he they definitely deserve a mention for that plotting. 
Um, yeah. we, we even, we even the clues and the narrative is, is where the fun's at. That's, that's the hard bit. That's the tricky bit because a lot depends on the type of narration that you use. It gives you more scope so you can insert clues in when you get to the end if you need to more easily than when you write first person. Like my, my latest novel's coming out soon, it's first person narration, um, which I found easier to write and, and you read it a lot quicker, but also you're limited then because the reader can only see what your narrator sees. Yeah, I can imagine that would be harder to do. It makes it harder. The plot has got to be a lot tighter. Yeah, that that that's really a fun thing to do. Before we, we sort of speak to, to our guests, we do do a little bit of research, John. And one of the things I came across about you, which I thought was quite interesting, I want you to elaborate on it, plotting murders with a pint of ale at your elbows. I am hoping these are murders for books and not of real people. Yeah, no, they are. Yeah, yeah thankfully they are. Now, I remember reading once, Agatha Christie said that the best time to plot a mystery is when you're doing the dishes. So luckily, dishwashers have been invented since then. So I find a more fun way to do it. And that's usually with a pint at my elbow. Like I say, <laughs> my latest novel, Sunday Murder, which comes out in springtime, I was caught in a rainstorm in London one day and I just took shelter in the pub and over three pints I had basically the whole novel plotted out which was a stark contrast to Chief Hall Manor because the mystery of Chief Hall Manor it was a, a, a plotted it, it took weeks and even then it was a work in progress whereas with Sunset Murder a couple of pints yeah Bob Jungle and, and that's your second one is it? that's the second one and what point of view is that one? so it's it's quite ambitious it's um it's written in the first person but there's four narrators the latest feedback mm-hmm. i had from it said it's basically a mix between lucy foley and Richard osman it's not a bad compliment <laughs> it's, it's not no when i wrote chief on manor as much as i liked the book and that i thought well i wasn't sure in the audience i wrote yeah. it because i wanted to write it you know i, I wrote it because it's the type of book i want to read but i wasn't i had no idea how it would be received like thankfully, like the ratings that I get and reviews are excellent. Thankfully, um, but I, I just wasn't sure. So when it came to my second one, I thought, well, let's write something modern day. Write something on a, a holiday read. People, some people only read on holiday. So I thought, well, write for them. More than half of my sales for Truthful Manor are to America. I never would have dreamed that I'd be selling books in America. Never, let alone more than half of the sales go to America. You know, I just, I don't, I don't get it. But then, having said that, the editor said that this chief, the mystery of Chief of Manor is basically a mixture between Downton Abbey and Poirot. And we know the Americans love Downton Abbey. So you can kind of see, <laughs> you can kind of yeah. see where that comes from, you know, but I never would have, you know. Well, you did set your cap at a genre that is massively popular. So, you know, it, it's good that people are picking up on that yeah i suppose i mean it's great it's 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 so much fun like the writing process is fun but the publishing process is yeah. is a lot of fun as well more than i thought it would be to be fair so we want to ask you about what's next for you um but you have said that you've already written your second book you're working on your third working on the third yeah so the third one's actually i'm going back it's going to be another inspector graves novel um, How many are you planning for Inspector Graves, or are you not planning? You're just going to keep writing till he runs out. Yeah, I'm. I'm I, when I started writing, I thought twenty. If I, if I read twenty Inspector Graves books over twenty years, then 
that's that's great. That's what I want to do, you know. Okay. Like I said, I should have probably written the second Inspector Graves book straight after Chicago Manor, but I decided to write Sunset Murder, which I'm really happy with. I think it's a good book, so hopefully that does well. Um, but no, the second Inspector Graves book, I'm writing it now. Uh, it's set straight after Chicago Manor, and it's it's going to be called The Riddle of the Ravens, and it's set at the Tower of London around Guy Fox Night. Okay. So, so some of the ravens at the Tower of London are die in mysterious circumstances. Graves and Carver get sent to the Tower of London to investigate and beef eaters start getting killed. And they have to investigate the beef eaters at the Tower of London getting killed. And that's that's basically Death the plot. everywhere you go. Everywhere I go, yeah. Don't <laughs> don't stand too close to me, you know. Don't, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sniper, I'll get you. Yeah, um, I love that. So everyone that's listening today, how can we follow your journey online? Well, I'm on Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days. It will be called when you listen. Uh, and the handle is at J underscore S underscore Savage underscore. Same with Instagram. It's JS Savage author. But if you just type in JS Savage, um, you'll find me. But if you'd like to read a review of Truthful Manor, there's a, there's a really good book blog called In Search of the Classic Mystery Novel. It's very, very popular. And in December, he picked... Mr. Chief Old Manor is his book of the month. Um, okay. So that was really good. Really, really, really pleased with that. Like, well, congratulations. There's never really an end to a good book, is there? It's not, well, I wrote that one years ago because people can pick that up for years and years and years to come. Like I said earlier, I never intended to write and publish and make a sort of career or anything out of it. But as I was writing, and I enjoyed it and I got good feedback about my writing and stuff because I wrote a few short stories that were shortlisted for national prizes and things. So that sort of gave me confidence to sort of put myself out there. And I thought, you know what, like you just said, if you write a book now, 20 years time, someone might buy that and you make a few quid from something you did 20 years ago. Like where else can you do that? you yeah. got to try, don't you? You know, you got to put yourself out there and have a go. Yeah, you know. and everybody loves a storyteller. Well, that's you know actually that's a great word that I like to use. I'm not I'm not a writer in the sense that perfect in English grammar, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm a storyteller. I yeah. tell the story. The editor makes it in the book. Yeah, that makes sense. Say that. Yeah, you do what you do best, and then you leave someone else to do what they do. Yeah, you play to your strengths, don't you? Yeah, yeah, you do. Hundred percent. That's great. Thank you very much. Thanks for thanks for having me on the show. You are very welcome. No, thank you very much, John, for joining us. Yeah, no, I love the podcast. It's great. I've been binge listening the last couple of days and great podcast. I love it. <laughs> thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Right. <laughs> Take care of yourself. Thank you. Yeah, thank Andrew, you. you very much, John. Happy New Year. Cheers. Cheers. Happy New thank Year. You. Interesting conversation. I do love these. I've got to say, I was a little bit surprised when I was reading The Mystery of Treefall Manor. In my head, the author was an owl man. And John is like, in his 30s, so he's obviously got a really mature outlook on life to be able to write that genre in that way. What do you mean you thought he was an owl man? What you like? You know, you get an image in your head of this person that's written the book that you're reading and John wasn't it. Did you think that the author was as old as the setting of the book then? So you reckon he was a, a young bloke in 1926? Maybe so. Maybe so. I was expected grey hair and a handlebar moustache and a tweed jacket with patches on the elbows. And you get this 36-year-old modern, well-spoken, chatty individual with a smiley face. And it's like, 
nope, that's not what was in my mind. It's funny, actually, because it was the sort of research that I was doing about him. Yeah. And it was the pint of ale. And it's, it's funny because it was that bit there, the pint of ale, that made me think perhaps he was a lot older than what he is. <laughs> because you don't expect somebody in the 30s to be drinking a pint of ale. So you're not just me then. No, it wasn't. It wasn't just you. But it was an interesting conversation. It was quite amusing to talk to as well, wasn't it? Good sense of humour. I love the way that he, he sort of described the, the planning of the book. Yeah. I was a bit puzzled throughout that interview and I kind of wanted to ask him, but I didn't want to throw off the interview too much, that how difficult that must be to actually develop your characters when you, you have to look at the plot and it's the plot that drives the characters, not the characters that drive the plot. Yeah, yeah, and it works backwards on some of it. Yes, yeah. That must be a really strange thing to do. It's, it's. I am amazed at how many different ways an author can actually write a book. I know, there is loads, isn't there? We kind of don't think about it. Yeah, not that John described himself as an author, did he? He describes himself as a storyteller. Yeah, authors are, are supposed to be storytellers. Love a good bit of fiction, me. I do as well. So we've got some fiction coming up for us next week, haven't we, that's a little bit shorter than a book? A little bit shorter than a book, yes, between 500 and 1,000 words. And the writing prompt for the next episode is The Art of Deception. And I have to say, we have already chosen our favourites and really looking forward to bringing those to you in the next one. I'm surprised you've not written a story about the art of deception. Why give away all my secrets? I'm just going to say you're a master at that. Shut your face and say goodbye, April Berry. No, I'm not. What I'm going to say to you is, I remember years ago, somebody said to me, the only way that you know all the facts is if you get all the people together that have got the snippets of information. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Do you not? <laughs> but yes, that has been said. I never tell anybody everything. No, it's just weird. But actually, who does? I don't think anybody does. It's like when you make friends. We have so many friends. How repetitive would it be just to give the same story out every single time you see a new person? You'd get bored telling it, wouldn't you? Well, you would, but it's not meant to be a story, you know. It's meant to be factual information about yourself. Well, you know what I mean. You like to put a little bit of polish and spin on the stuff that you tell. It's not really good, is it, telling somebody about your 14 convictions and you... Not that you have. Have you got 14 convictions now? <laughs> No, I don't. <laughs> You've wrapped it up a bit since last we spoke about them. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> Oi, you're trying to get your own back. I'll get you hung. Yeah, you will. No. Um, maybe I should have rephrased that slightly differently. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should, yes. Yeah. As well as next week's The Art of Deception flash fiction episode, because I'm feeling very kind today, I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up. So the flash fiction writing prompt for the stories after that is a pocket full of stars. What would you write for a pocket full of stars? The deadline is the 17th of January. So you've got a full week from today to get your creative juices flowing and see if you want to take part. So take care of yourselves, everybody, and we'll see you in a week's time. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Now you've had a listen, why not pop over and join us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to send in your flash fiction submissions, you just need to email us at beerbookspod1 at gmail.com. 
And now that you're part of the Bear Books family, why not share us with all the bookworms and creatives in your life? <laughs>